A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to Cocoons of Horror, the podcast that revisits classic horror films and other pulp fiction. Today we take a look at Guillermo del Toro's dark fairy tale, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is a twisted and fantastical look at a young girl's journey through two worlds, balancing the surreal and the terrifying reality of war. With me, as always, is Dr. Anthony Ladon. Steve, this is a very odd genre movie. In that you could call it a World War II movie, you could call it a fantasy, and you could also call it a horror. How, how would you classify the genre of this movie? I yeah, I would say it's like the horror slash fantasy. I think that's you don't know. Uh, if, it, it's a lot more common to have the horror slash sci-fi, right? Yeah, you don't the often horror see the horror suspense. Sure, I, I I mean Game of Thrones clearly has horror elements. And it's got fantasy elements, right? But right. you you don't often see the horror slash fantasy. Can you think of another film that does that? Pete's Dragon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe a movie that wanted to might be like Legend, perhaps. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Just because that was like, that was before Tom Cruise had his uh, teeth fixed. <laughs> Do you have an elevator pitch for Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, Alice Cooper in Wonderland. (laughs) I like that a lot. Wow, I like that a lot. That's good. I was thinking like along somewhere along the lines of like what war does to women, something along Mm. that. I think this is a, a this movie is very much about. I guess you could say what what war and men of war do to women, something like that. Yeah, it's a weird one. You've seen this, what, twice now? Yes. Yeah, I've seen this twice now. And my first viewing, I will be honest, I fell asleep. Mm. Uh, so I think we've talked about this before and said, yeah, I didn't really like it. What I didn't reveal then was that I disliked it so much that I fell asleep. So I wasn't like hate watching. I was just totally bored with it. Mm, okay. Uh, this time, of course, I stayed awake. Helpful for this podcast. <laughs> I made sure that's the least I can do. I feel like it's the it's the very least I can do. Stay awake for the film. Uh, how was your second viewing? Uh, it was it was definitely different um, because I think the first time I saw it, it was on the theater, big screen, and uh, it was uh, I was pretty mesmerized by the, the visuals, the uh, the graphic. Uh, violence, mm. the um, the just the overall tension and tone was uh, was I was pretty like uh, locked in, um, and I was I, one of those movies. At least for me at the time, and maybe it was just because I didn't really know what to expect. I was pretty uh, a little slower than I uh, had recalled. Not necessarily in a bad way, um, but I think it's because there was so much like what's going to happen next in the in the first viewing that. I didn't maybe notice the pacing as much mm. and because I knew where it was going um, and I knew kind of what to expect. It was, it was interesting. I could really, I could really appreciate the visuals a lot more mm-hmm. and maybe even some of the, um, 
just some of the more thematic elements, I think. Uh, uh, right. The visuals more. are really important in this movie. It seems like an odd thing to say. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> visuals are usually important. But I can imagine that this film would have felt very, very, very different on the big screen. And I'll be honest, because I'm relying on the subtitles... I'm just absorbing less of the visual experience because I'm relying on the subtitles. Mm, yeah, yeah. For me, like I, t- I completely missed. I think the first time around, probably maybe because I was asleep. <laughs> I completely missed the first time around that the attic office of Captain Vidal looks like the interior of a clock. Right, he's got lots of gears all around him. Mm. Totally missed it. Totally missed it. I wouldn't wouldn't have known to look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was obsessed with figuring out what the stupid pocket right. watch uh, means, and so I was looking for all of the sort of I don't know metaphors of time in the film. Right. And that's easily something that you could miss if you're laser beam focused on all of the subtitles. Yeah, it's it's always tough. I think when you're when you're having to read a movie because you you want to also. Even if you don't understand uh, the language, you want to uh, kind of follow the music of the language to some degree, right? And you want to be able to to catch that part of it. And it's easy to sort of ignore it. Um, so watching it a second time, not that I had the dialogue me- memorized or anything, but I, because I, I had a better sense of what was going on in each scene, mm. I could I could do more of a glance at at the dialogue, which was you know was with nice. Guillermo del Toro. Sometimes I feel like the dialogue is significantly less important than the visual. I agree. It's almost like you're watching like a a moving portrait. Mm. And everything that you need to know is kind of on the screen. And then the characters are there just to sort of punctuate what you've already learned by, by seeing what's there. I don't feel like these characters are re- reveal a whole lot with their conversations. Right. He's much more of a show, don't tell. Uh, yeah. Writer. And I, I think that the, the reverse side of that, if I was going to be critical, I, I would say that these are not interesting films in terms of dialogue. I've only seen, what, like four or five of his films. But I, I almost always feel like, yeah, I don't know if dialogue is his thing. Interesting you say that because like that was I think part of my thing with the Nightmare Alley is that there were moments where it was like when he when they would use dialogue to sort of say something I'm like I think I already knew that you know what I mean exactly and yeah. and so it was so sometimes the dialogue bummed me out because I'm like ah, you didn't need it you know I mean you're you're trust it right you know and, mm-hmm. and or it could go back to I mean for this film in particular there is a very child's fantasy element to it so i think that there's part of the even though it's a very adult film he wants to give the facade of a child's fantasy novel right right so maybe the dialogue helps with that you know the dialogue in a in a fantasy novel is not going to necessarily be quentin tarantino yeah and we're also in this case you and i are relying on translation and that's true. And I was I know enough Spanish that I, every now and then I'd be like, mm, that's not exactly what he's. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it would be a totally different experience if I knew Spanish well enough that I didn't need the subtitles at all and I could just kind of soak in the film. And that right. honestly, I don't know, did you ever see The Green Knight? No. It's similar. Similar to this film in terms of tone. And again, maybe that is a little fantasy horror there. I'm not sure. But that film, completely in English, I could just kind of soak in the visuals in a way that I couldn't for this film. Mm. So anyway, I, I think probably we've done enough on the subtitle. How did you feel about the, the typeface of the subtitle? <laughs> yeah, you know, when it comes to subtitle font, I feel like we, we could really up our game. I mean, certainly appreciate uh, Sans Serif whenever you can. I mm-hmm. just that just takes away from it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, the I worst wonder... the worst offender in this regard was uh, the first Avatar. That font was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, what was that? Papyrus. It was papyrus, and I kind of felt like, yeah, you can't just Helvetica. I mean, come on, let's. 
I mean, papyrus. It's like, well, is this is this a movie, or are we promoting a hip church? It's that would the only thing worse than <laughs> hip church. The only thing worse than papyrus would be like Comic Sans. Yeah, I'd rather just watch a whole movie in Wingdings. <laughs> well, well, we just did a full two minutes on typeface jokes. All right. Well, good night, everybody. Uh, we'll watch Teen Wolf next. <laughs> Who's this movie for, Steve? Children. What? Did you see Children? <laughs> yeah. It's a kids' just, movie, right? Yeah. Just tell them to kind of look through their fingers when the the son gets killed with the butt of a bottle in front of his father. Yeah. Look through your fingers until your hand is split open. <laughs> until you have a little a little slit in your hand that you can put an eyeball in. Yeah. This is it's a good question. I mean, I think this movie is for I think it's for horror fans, right? I mean, I, I, and again, I don't think it's purely horror because I think there is something about. I mean, there's clearly uh, uh, war and political allegories, and there's all kinds of of other elements. I mean, it's a it's a it's a thoughtful film, and it's and it's clearly a fairy. Ta- it's this is like an old school fairy tale, like how fairy tales were originally constructed right i mean that's what it feels like it's right yeah uh, i think that you're right i think a lot of children's literature back in the day was a, a was sort of leaned into horror it, they were cautionary mm-hmm. tales right right yeah and they don't end well and usually the protagonist dies in many cases right but like and then yeah, they the, get the child ends up in a pie or something right right and it, it, it's yeah because it is it's a, it's it's interesting how these fairy tales are just these bleak caution cautionary tales um mm-hmm. and and this is interesting because it's a fairy tale within right like so the the fairy tale operates uh in parallel with uh the, you know mm-hmm. so it's like the thing that like the, the fairy tale you could make in the argument on its own is trying to um be the cautionary tale about maybe war-torn spain at the time and fa- and the rise of fascism um, but it, but because it, they're existing simultaneously, um, it creates it, it, it creates a little confusion. But I mean, it also I think it creates that confusion on purpose. Yeah, on the face of it, the allegory is not subtle, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, and so if if you get turned off by allegory, I'm not sure if this film is for you. The other thing about this is that. It does expect you to know a, something crucial about this particular era in 1940s Spain, right? You don't need to know it to appreciate the film. But if you do know a little bit about Franco and fascism in Spain, I think that you will appreciate the film more. Right, I would agree with that. And also if you are a fan of the Grimm brothers or whatever, you might appreciate some of the subversion of tropes that he's doing in this film. So I don't, if you're just a straight horror fan, I don't, I don't know how you experience this film. Yeah. So my, I'll, I'll say my son is, I think a, uh, much more of a horror connoisseur than he is maybe a history fan and mm-hmm. definitely likes film. And he really enjoyed this. And, um, cause I think it does have enough, right? I think there is, if you're a horror fan, for example, there's, there's clearly some very, interesting uh effects um there's really good play with tension scares that aren't jump scares um and yeah it establishes a mood a lot i mean a lot of sense of the horror is just established with the tone of the movie right and the bulk of the horror is in real life not in the fantasy realm Exactly. That that's an interesting thing to me. It's like there are clearly monsters in this film, but the most monstrous character is just your garden variety fascist, right? right. Yeah, and and the, the the notion of fascism in and of itself, right? I mean, that becomes the that's the world that she's trapped in, right? That's the labyrinth that she's really trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um and and so, I mean, obviously, yeah, again, going back to these these allegories that uh, feel pretty pretty on the nose, but uh, I, I think are, are still very effective. Um, I, but what it does, it creates, uh, what he does really well is he doesn't make the fantasy a pure escape either, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's what's really great about it is that 
the the fawn is I don't know how I feel about the fawn, right? I mean, the fawn is mm-hmm. portrayed in such a way where uh, do you trust this fawn? Um, well, he's he's got all of the marks of a monster, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but it's he this this girl is not afraid of the monster nearly as much as she's afraid of her stepfather, right? Right. And the fawn does help her. And you think, well, to what end? What is the fawn getting out of this? And yet you don't... I, I think that she trusts the fawn much more than the viewer trusts the fawn. Right. Do you think that David Bowie would have improved this movie? <laughs> always. Always, always, always. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if the fawn had, like, maybe a bigger cod piece. <laughs> That's the one tweak yeah. to this film. Just a slightly larger cut. We don't. We don't want to turn people off, but let's <laughs> let's be real here. This is a fawn we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, going back to the fawn, um, I, I remember. I mean, it, it's that's again the first viewing is that I never knew which world was going to be the worst for her, right? Like, I, I, you never, like, initially you're like, okay, well, the, you would think the fantasy world would be this escape from that, right? Like, it kind of, this mm-hmm. is where she'll have more agency. This is where maybe there'll be more comforts. There'll be, you know, but, in, and it isn't, right? I mean, not not initially. She has tasks. She has things she has to do. Yeah. Um, And uh, it just becomes, like, you're like, I don't know. I mean, I don't, like, I mean, at least there's people looking out for her to some degree, Mm-hmm. Uh, in the real world, and there is people rising up, but I don't know who's who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. I I definitely know that um, the pale man with at the table, not a good guy. That I know for sure. You can tell by the artwork he surrounds himself with. Yeah, yeah. His his artwork. I mean, <laughs> like, and Number I'll tell one, you what. It's a little bit. It's a little bit garish to have yourself depicted right around your house. That's fine. Then you have portraiture of yourself. Uh, impaling children, <laughs> and I mean, and and kudos, and you know, to Mitch McConnell who crushed that role. By the way, I mean, he was <laughs> brave. <laughs> Little known fact about the uh, senator from Kentucky: because yeah, no makeup, all just just the way it is. I mean, I, I like that. I like. I mean, finally get to see him in his final form. <laughs> He actually has to put on makeup to visit the Senate. Right. This is just him in his ungarnished form. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard to read your filibuster material when your eyes were in your hands. So they, they was done some work. Like that. <laughs> I did. I did like all of the subversion of tropes. You know, there was the. You know, I think in a lot of these old fairy tales, it's the evil stepmother, mm-hmm. right? So this one, it was the evil stepfather. Right. And the you know the the three tasks that's that's a very fantasy trope. Like we have to you, you know there, there's something at the end of this, right. but you will only do you get it if you're worthy. Yeah, and interesting too, like the the theme of three, like how it shows up, and like and that third task being uh, being a problem, right? Like like you have the guy who's um, he could be freed if he can count to three without the stutter. Sure. And, oh, and, interesting. And, and when he gets to connection. the third one, it just something something's amiss, and it, it it's gonna be bad news for him. And you know she she right. did she did her first two tasks. The second one, he didn't go the way that it was supposed to. But then the third one, she actually just fully circumvents it, right? And um, kind of classic storytelling, filmmaking type applications. But I think I I think it works, right? I and mean, I think that's the reason why sometimes these things are used a lot. And especially in, in a, like you said, in following the fairy tale story approach, I think it really, it adds something to it because it's very adult. It's a very, you know, dark film. Yeah. So, but it's able to play with those things. Cause and again, I think that speaks to like, if you're an adult watching it, chances are you've, you've had a relationship with fairy tales. I mean, just almost all cultures, right. Have had some uh, interaction with, with, yeah, whether it's, you know, whether it's sort of urban myth or a cautionary tale or an you know, actual literal fairy tale. Yeah, it's 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 part of lots of different cultures. I did feel though 
So there's a couple of things about this film that that took me out of it. All right. So it's it's a little bit weird to say that it is a weakness of the film because it's like from the very beginning everything's a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's you if, as long you know if, if you're paying attention from the very beginning of the film, everything that happens in the fantasy realm is a metaphor for what's going on around this girl in real life. So it's a little bit odd to say, well, that, you know, that's implausible, right, you know, right. but there were a couple times when I thought, I don't understand why the character did it this way. So there were two things kind of bumped me a little bit. And the first was like, she's, she's been told, don't eat it. Don't eat anything from mm-hmm. the table. And it's very clear, like your life depends on this. And she, and she's a smart kid. So then I, you know, she immediately, t- she, she's eating the grape with her back to the monster. And I feel like this is contrived. This is just, this doesn't make sense for the character. This is just to put her in peril. And so you are, so the audience is smarter than the main character in this part. And I'm wondering, was that a problem for you at all? Yes and no. I mean, it is because it does feel like my, my feeling, the reason why that was a problem for me was because she's, she's entering into a world that, um, she has very little frame of reference mm-hmm. um, outside of maybe some of the, of her own imagination and other books that she's read. So when your guide is telling you very specific instructions and really the instructions were very specific about not eating anything um, that, you know, if, if a, if a monster gave me some instructions like a little bit ago, I'd probably remember those pretty well. <laughs> yeah, Especially if they were like in my there face. There's only like it. two rules, right? So, so anyway, yeah. And I'd be like, I'd be like, look, those grapes are super juicy. However, <laughs> that other monster was pretty clear about you know. So, so it does that does feel like the sense of urgency that she would have experienced in that situation um, would have would have caused her to behave differently, especially with the back turn to the monster. Right. right? Flip side of that is. Um, I mean, she's she's supposed to be a young child, um, right? And I don't know if you've ever had children that sometimes don't do the thing you ask them to do, or they do the thing you tell them specifically not to do. You know what? I think that maybe it's more that she took her eyes off the monster. Like I feel like if my daughter yeah. was that age, like maybe she does. Maybe there is something that attracts her to the. You know, maybe it's if it's not grapes, it's something that tempts her in a different way. But she's not taking her eyes off that monster. You know, she's smart. Yeah, but there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly the the overarching obedience of fascism theme, right? I mean, that's that's played throughout, right? I mean, the doctor speaks to it directly, mm-hmm. um, you know, or I will not, you know, basically obey just for the sake of obeying. And that's, that's the essence of fascism, right? Sure. And yeah. so the right. fawn takes on this character, which while he's helpful is also full of do this. I, and you know, and so there's this, you know, you do this or, you, or you'll die. Right. And so, so living in a world where maybe you're surrounded by arbitrary, don't do what's in your best interest mm-hmm. rules. Maybe maybe there's a natural you know butting against that right. I mean, to some that, that helps. It also um, helps that you know, like for so for me, like it happened, and I thought, well, why why did he do it? Like, clearly, he knows what he's doing. This is not an amateur filmmaker, right? So then, right. It, immediately, I'm thinking, well, why did he do it this way? And the only thing that I could come up with is. Well, this is war. What does war do to children? They starve. And so mm. maybe this is a... And she's already been punished without eating, right? Like that was like that had yeah, just Yeah, that happened. makes sense. And the ta- and the two tables mirror each other. Well, and there and there is a certain I mean there's a there's it feels uh like, you know, I mean the capitalism to some degree is on uh trial there. It feels like, yeah. right? I mean, you here's this the epitome of 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 mm-hmm. wealth, right? Just sitting there, surrounded by it, but not doing anything with it, right? Of mm-hmm. of value, your you your whole life is to is I mean, this creature kills children, so this and and you know, so this creature is all about uh, taking advantage of of those in a lower station, you know. That's and, right. 
and, and the thing is, is it will sit and it will not be bothered by you until you disturb its spoils. Right. The other thing that happened that was interesting to me was the uh, Mercedes character. She's got the knife. She stabs Captain Vidal in the back. Then she stabs him in the shoulder. Then she cuts Mm. his face open, right? Right. And she runs. She doesn't kill him. Why doesn't she kill Like, I just think, I I don't get why. Like, this, I can understand, like, you need that for the plot. You need her to run into the woods. and But I don't understand why her character would maim him and run without killing him. Yeah, and so Heather had an interesting comment when that happened. She's like, she doesn't know how to kill him. Oh, interesting. And the way she said it wasn't like, uh, she doesn't know, but it was the way she said it was, I just don't know how to, like she like it was it was pretty I thought it actually was, summed it up to me <laughs> and like I actually that helped I because I, I was kind of having that same thought like just kill the guy but then when she said she doesn't know how to kill him I was like, "Huh." Like there's something about that that feels true to the to the battling fascism, right? To the the ultimate mm-hmm. machine that is behind war. It's like the best maybe we can do is maim and run, right? Like, we can wound it, but we can't. Well, and there was a commentary on that in the film. I think it, when she's talking to her brother at one point, you know, it's sort of like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we can make things harder for him. Right, right. Yeah, exactly, right? So, th- so that happens. Um, and and I think what's important, and probably where maybe our viewings are, are slightly different, is I was willing to accept the whole thing as a fairy tale. Sure. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to as opposed to there's a there's a fairy tale allegory in this logical film, yeah, yeah. right? Um where in one hand it's like even the re so like the retelling of this this fictionalized version of fascism in a real time is kind of the fairy huh. tale too, right? Like if you were to just tell that story without the fawn, without the labyrinth um, you know, you would you're like because in fairy tales, why do the kids do what they do? The kids are always eating the house that they shouldn't be eating. The they're they're always doing, they're always getting, they always take that extra step, right? And so that in the fairy tale, so going back to this as a fantasy horror genre. I mean, I, ultimately, I guess it's a fairy tale genre mm-hmm. that's going to be both fantastical and horrific. That's interesting because we're just watching a, an interview with Guillermo del Toro and. He said, well, the whole thing's real. He's like, it's from a child's Mm. perspective. A child, uh, you know, for a modern adult viewer, you can make a distinction between what's fantasy and what's real. What you just said was, I took the whole thing as fairy tale. And what he said was, the whole thing is real. So I think you guys are almost saying the same things. Um, You know, to a child, you know, what is, what fantasy is real, right? Mm-hmm. So to her, the whole thing is is real, but her whole world is filtered through this fantasy cipher, I suppose. Yeah. So anyway, I I think that do, that does help me to appreciate those two scenes a little bit better. Um, but there were times during this film where I thought that's an odd choice. I, I don't understand. My biggest issue, my biggest issue, was the unlocking of the padlock and not just taking the the padlock. Right, with you. right, right, right. Because because it is a big deal. I mean, again, it, it, again, this always is like in the middle of I mean, how many times have you forgot to do something of consequence, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, like they're down there, they're they're creating a diversion, they're here taking everything from the storeroom, they're doing all that stuff. I could easily see someone being like. You took the padlock off, right? <laughs> I saw again. This is a life or death situation. You want and you want your characters to be smart enough so that you're not. It's it, again. There are just a couple odd choices. I want to talk about the pocket watch. Mm-hmm. What the hell's going on with the pocket watch? It's broken. <laughs> it's, it's, it's broken, and yet at, at one point in the film, he gets it. To, to start moving again, right? Yeah, he, that, and he's obsessed with the pocket watch, right? I mean, the, the pocket watch is the legacy, right? It's his father's sort of legacy of what it means to be a man, a good soldier. 
Ah, right. Well, then he then he denies it exists. Why? It's it, yeah. That that was the thing that got me. Like if if you're proud of your father, why not keep the pocket watch stopped to honor his death? And why are you lying about it when people ask you about it? Well, it seems like maybe to some on some level he feels like his father's death, like he's better than his father. Right, and he wants, yeah, maybe so. He maybe in at the end of the day, he's like, I, I look if that watch if that watch stays stopped, then his, then his watch will stop. If he can get that watch going, then he can maybe he can keep he can keep time moving in a in a different way. Like, look, I can I gotta, like he was almost restarting it, right? And there's this idea that like this is this stopped watch represents death. It's an inevitability for you. Right. For, for him to restart it and to to sort of alter it, it, it's like he's trying to change his own legacy. And it speaks to and maybe that speaks to the concept of fascism saying, look, fascism will end the same way. All, all pursuits of fascism will end ultimately in, you know, a, in a form of death and it will not succeed. But fascism lies to itself and says, well, I can do it. Yeah. And I might say I might say it differently. I might say something like fascism promises to honor the past in in reality it just devours the past like let's honor a particular tradition of our forefathers by forcing everyone to live a particular way but in reality what it does is it devours the past it 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 it, it tries to enforce something on the present so that the past can no longer be honored in the way that it would want to be honored and I think that instead of trying to honor his father, he's almost erasing his father's legacy by getting the watch going again. Right. And to acknowledge to acknowledge what he did and to, you know, and uh, that he gave this keepsake, um, it suggests his father's dead. And it suggests that his uh, that that. While he's saying, "Hey, you know, you die, you dying in battle is is this wonderful thing." He's like, "Yeah, but at the end of the day, you didn't win the battle. You died in battle." Yeah, so maybe he is and, more ashamed of his father than he is proud of his father, right? And then at the end, he tries to do the the very thing where it's like, like almost like he has this aha moment to some degree. It's like, okay, well, this is a uh, I want you know my son to have this thing. They're like, no, nah. like they erase the past, right? They erase him. And that's ultimately the goal, right? I mean, that that's the the best way that you can essentially stop something from happening again is to kind of burn the blueprint. The other element to the watch that's pretty on the nose is as soon as we meet her, we see her dead corpse, but the blood is not dripping from her mouth and nose. It's actually getting sucked up into the mouth and nose. Right. So she is reversing time. And it's interesting. Like we, the very first thing we know about her is that she's going to die, right? Right. Um, but I think that the movie does a great job of sort of making her peril feel very significant, even if right. we know that she's going to die. But what we also know about her is that she doesn't live by the usual temporal rules so she is basically she's eternal and that's the promise that she can live eternally and that is you know you put that against this idea of the clock representing mortality you have this massive contrast between the good guy and the bad guy in this case yeah oh and i just remembered another the the other another element of threes sure um uh at the end you have the thrones you have three thrones one is empty, and we never actually see her get in it. Uh huh. And so I think, like the idea of like that third, that third one is always kind of interrupted, right? Uh huh. Like yeah. That, and so there's something about that because it does. I mean, it, it's it's a stuttered you're supposed three to feel, motif, right? And you feel you feel she's not in the throne. Like I get that moment. You know, it, it feels like it's like okay, we're celebrating it. We know that you know you're now you're balancing this. Is this her imagination as she's dying? Is this, did she really open this portal? Is this fairy tale real? Does it, you know, and then going back to the sort of we talked about before, it's like the fairy tale is real. It's as real as anything else for her, and why not? Yeah, I missed that one. Uh, the The three thrones is interesting. 
And I like the idea that it's sort of a again a, a subversion to the the trope. It's not a full three, which would suggest that the story is complete, right? Right. The story is somewhat open ended in that sense. Um, is there a half the battle, one to grow on moment in this film, Steve? I don't know that there's a one to grow. I feel like everything is pretty well represented. <laughs> you know, war. Huh. What is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. How do you feel about shaving with a straight edge? I I, I will never. I have such a hard time watching any movie where somebody's shaving with the straight. It freaks me out. I, I think that for some folks it represents nostalgia, but having lived a life that never included shaving with the straight edge, it just, I mean, you might as well have like a Valyrian steel sword that's about to cut my throat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey, instead of using a Q-tip, why don't you use this 22 caliber gun? <laughs> It, it absolutely it just it bring it brings a sense of horror to my mind. Yeah, and of course you know maybe folks my my father's age wouldn't feel this way, but the the whole idea the whole notion of of a man shaving with a, basically a knife, I I feel really really squeamish and honestly I feel a little bit emasculated by the whole thing. <laughs> like if I was a man's man, that would be like yeah I'll do that. Right. Yeah, no, I get it. I need to have, like, you know, multiple rotating blades and lift and cut technology. <laughs> Was there a cliche trope or device that worked for you in this film? Yeah, I mean, almost almost all of them. Um, you know, I mean, because there is so many familiar tropes. Yeah. Um, I uh, I just was really into, um, I'm into the, the labyrinth itself. Um, I like, I, I, I'm kind of a sucker for that, uh, you know, like the end of the shining, you know, there's that, that chase scene and, and, um, you know, of course in this one, the labyrinth actually opens up for her so she can make her way through. Well, there um, is a which parallel, does, which does add which does add an element in there. Right. I mean, that yeah. adds an element to, uh, cause at that moment you get the sense of like, well, is this real? You know, cause, mm. cause she's being chased in real life. But she's able to get through to where he wasn't able to. Right. At the the, the scene at the very end, you you finally see the veil, you know, something unveiled about her perception that she can right. see the fawn and he can't. Right. Um. But I I did, I was thinking about The Shining as well during this film when the labyrinth is being introduced. This is very old, and this was here even before the mill. Mm-hmm. So you do have that sense that like okay. We're dealing with prehistory, some some kind of magical site that predates human understanding here. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things that I thought were not tropey at all, but really worked for me is the whole toad thing. When the toad sort of like, oh, yeah, like vomits out his guts and like <laughs> he is just like sitting in this gelatinous stomach or something. I don't feel like I've seen that. <laughs> no, I think that was pretty, yeah, that was fresh. <laughs> that was pretty great. The chalk, have you seen the chalk thing before? I thought that was really effective. I haven't. I, no, I, I like that idea, and I like the idea that she keep using it, too. Um, I thought that was uh, yeah, that was an, uh, clever, a clever way to kind of get in, obviously get in and out of things, and again, going back to that, like sort of upsetting the, uh, the reality uh-huh. and space and time kind of thing. Okay, so can we talk about the no eyeball guy at the, in the in the pit? M- sure. McConnell. Yeah. Did you ever really feel menaced by that guy? Cuz I kind of felt like, well, she's going to get away. That's th- there's no way that this this creature gets her. Well, when I first saw it, it was it because it was so uh unsettling. The the visual, the the methodical nature like i mean and with most of these things right like you almost all horror if you've got sort of the final girl approach like figure i'll probably get away um it would be weird if the movie didn't so i think there's always that 
knowledge, or at least that that supposition, and it's rare that a movie will take that away from you. Um, but the first time I saw it, I was the whole scene was very. It's interesting because I thought everything was pretty slow, much slower this time. Except that scene, I thought was quicker than I remember. Mm, I remember really, really being on the edge of my seat just because of how grotesque he was, and and the way that they built it up, and and uh, it just it was a frightening scene. So watching it a second time, knowing all of what was going to happen, um, and maybe taking more in on the visual side of it, I didn't feel like it was all that tense. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how much less tension there was and how much of it was really based on the visual side of it initially. So one of our conversations prior to this was that uh, Heather wasn't interested in rewatching because it's too sad. Mm-hmm. So did she watch it this time around? Yeah. And what was her take on that? Still sad. Still sad. <laughs> yeah, it is sad. <laughs> but did that was that a deal breaker for her? No, I mean it didn't. I mean, obviously, she knew it was coming, and I think she had a similar, uh, you know, uh, response as I did, which was like, okay, now I can kind of really appreciate some of the story and mm-hmm. visuals more. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, still, you know, and it was still effective. It was still. Uh, like she, she had a real connection with uh, the Ophelia character. She just was uh, always thought, and she is good. She's very good in the role. I think that she um, is believable. Oh yeah, the, I should. Yeah, uh, we should mention that that as far as child actors go, this this actor is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think everything is is fairly convincing, and it's um, uh, her her journey and navigating through feels somewhat authentic. Cause I mean, on one hand you're like, well, she just sort of dove right into that fantasy world. It's like, and that's kind of what we've been, that we've been led to believe that mm-hmm. she sort of spends her time in her imagination already. And that's been the criticism from other people is that she's not really present. She's always in some other fantasy land. Is this movie better, worse or on par with a Ron Howard film? Oh, it's, it's a, it's a Ron Howard plus two. All right, I was going to say Ron Howard plus three. So it's same same range for sure. Yeah, and and, and I, I definitely, because I definitely think, you know, maybe you could go higher, but I, I maybe put, uh, maybe going a notch down just because some of the stuff is so on the nose and that, that feels like maybe, like if Ron Howard does allegory, <laughs> I feel like it would be, it, it, he may do more exposition about how allegorical it is. Well, here's the thing I was but, thinking. I was thinking, here's... Here's what Howard has over this film. I think that if you just sort of put a bunch of Ron Howard films on a dartboard and you threw a a dart at it, my guess is that anything the dart hits would be more rewatchable than this film. Mm. Okay. Like, if you just want to, like, hey, I just want to live in that world a little bit. I I remember enjoying that experience. I'm going to, you know... Just I'm just gonna sit down with Tom Hanks for a while and and just enjoy Tom Hanks. I think that this film is very artfully done. I've seen it twice and I feel like that's good. I think I'm good. Yeah. Not that I didn't enjoy the experience, but I, but there is a sense in which you know there's only so much you can only so many times you could revisit this and and enjoy it. Right. Like I think you would. I would love to see the. Uh, like some of the schematics for some of the effects and maybe some of the still images to really appreciate, but I don't need, I don't need to be in those scenes again. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That little mandrake baby that was under the bed. <laughs> yeah. That, that was maybe the most unsettling part of this film. I have a hard time uh, making anything with a raw ginger after this movie. <laughs> you want to do some feedback steve sure all right let me pull it up i wasn't sure what you'd say so i wasn't (laughs) (laughs) you thought this might be the time i object you're like no not doing it today this is where the creative differences finally start kicking in All right, this is uh this is an Apple iTunes review, which by the way, you know, we encourage this, right? 
we want feedback. We want to know how, how can we be better? And most, more importantly, how great are we? <laughs> Honestly, what I'm looking for, I'm looking for something about the review that we can talk about, right? Mm. So if, it, if it's too generic, I mean, five-star reviews, that's fine. That helps our algorithm, whatever that means. I'm not really sure what that is. I've heard it's people pronounced say it. algorithm. I see. I see. <laughs> you know, put some respect on his name. You invented the internet. <laughs> the algorithms. Oh, that's great. Man, how is he not having like his own jazz band called the algorithm? <laughs> I would love to see him just have any rhythm at all. I mean, his first album is Algorithm Method. I <laughs> Oh, that's great. I like that it's rhythm he... <laughs> and not rhythms because he only has yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, the algorithm method because just like when he was in his uh, presidential campaign, he knew when to pull out. <laughs> that's a that's a little bit of uh, 90s humor for you folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Which actually it. feeds right into this comment. So this is from Cosmic Bud. Oh, yeah. Cosmic Bud says, all the heart emojis... These two seem like they still leave voicemails, hmm. and I'm exactly here for it. Thank you for making this show. Do you still leave voicemails, Steve? You know, that's an interesting. I get I get very self conscious about voicemails, right? I mean, it's like I don't. I've never. I was never particularly good at it. Like I mm-hmm. think I was a late, probably a late adopter of the answering machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and I was never really good at leaving. You know, uh, I mean, I guess now, like, it's pretty good. They have like where you can like edit. Most of them can be like, "Are you sure that's what you want to say?" You know, like I think we've, as a society, we've just screwed up the voicemail so much mm-hmm. uh, that that we gave the you know the, the caller the option to to you know call a mulligan at that point. Um, but I don't, I don't like. I, here's the first thing: don't call me. Like when somebody calls me, like you'll do that. You'll be like, "You have time for a call?" And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> but I'm at least I'm asking for consent. Right. No, I appreciate that. Like when people just cold call you like and like and it's someone, you know, when I see like a name, like I expect to see a number I don't recognize because it's going to be something about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. my school loan or my car insurance or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, whatever it is. But when I see like somebody call and it's someone I know, I'm just like, you know, someone better be dead. Well, I do make I I am very old school with this kind of stuff. Like I I'm not a luddite in that I'm against technology. I'm a luddite in that I only learn technology if I have to. Mm-hmm. You and I are very different when it comes to this. I'm not a big technology person and I kind of like that about myself. Mm. I I like that I will have an old school voice conversation with you. Even if it's something that you might not have sought out, maybe you didn't appreciate the phone call. You know, we always laugh, you know, four or five times during that phone call. And I appreciate that. I I think you might appreciate it, too. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, once you're in it, I mean, it's, it's, and that's, I guess, a little bit different. Normally, when we call, like you call, it's like, hey, I don't want to text this out. Like, it's something to do with, uh, yeah, at a relative importance, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's the uh, the call that could have for sure been an email. <laughs> it's a little bit like watching Shakespeare on film, where you're thinking, "Do I have to do this?" But then yeah. when you're in, you're like, "Oh yeah, this guy's pretty. Good. Shakespeare's pretty good, I guess." Yeah, but it does feel like initially you're like, "If I'm not getting graded for this, <laughs> then why am why? I doing this? <laughs> why am I doing this?" Talk like a normal person. <laughs> so I will leave uh, Cosmic Bud. I will leave a voicemail from time to time, but le- much, much less so these days. Uh, and normally, if I do it, it's because I've I've texted you a couple times, and I actually do need to get a hold of you with some urgency. Hmm. And, you know, I, honestly, it, I'm a little hypocritical because I rarely will listen to voicemails. I'll be, oh, he, that person left me a voicemail. I guess I better text him <laughs> right. or I will call them back. You know, so just, you know, of course, I, I probably have four or five unlistened to 
voicemails on my phone right now. It is weird, though, that like as a society, like we got to a point where we said, hey, we're no longer going to write letters and send them through the post. We've invented the phone. And mm. so now we call <laughs> and, and, and it was like, oh, my gosh, now I can just talk to you. Oh, this is so much easier and mm. so much more convenient. And then like we, we hit a point where uh, I remember when texting was first starting to happen. Now, granted, this was like pre iPhone, but like you could text somebody on mm-hmm. like your your razor or your, you know, mm-hmm. some sort of Nokia flip. Yeah. It was a chore, right? Because, I mean, it, most of the time, unless you unless you had splurged for a Blackberry, you're yeah. having to do like a three, you know, okay, I want to spell, spell the word no, but I got to get K, so I got to go J, then K, all right, oh, I don't want capital. And it's a whole thing, right? And so mm-hmm. it was inconvenient. But then the iPhone came out like, oh, my gosh, I can just text you. And I'm like, initially, I think we we're thinking like, well, why would we do that when you could just call? It just seems to be, it's like, yeah, but now I don't have to, now I can not interact with people. Like, mm-hmm. and that's really what we're really looking for. We want to communicate, but we don't want to, to interact. Well, also you can edit yourself more easily. I think like if it's a phone call and you mess up, well, that's, they, you said it and they heard you say it and there's no taking it back. You don't really have to interact with people in real time when you're texting. And yeah. you could think about a reply. You can start a reply and then stop and you know rewrite it. But you, you but you, you as a receiver can infer whatever you want, right? Like if someone says, like I know in, in our household, for example, if somebody says okay as a response, mm-hmm. uh, it's it does feel abrupt. If you say K you it feels like oh you're mad you're being you're being flipped <laughs> so there's like certain things that people like w- like we have to like you have to sort of understand the nuances of the text dynamic mm-hmm. like if i if i text a long thing that i think is fairly nuanced and a person responds with okay uh i mean i could i don't know if that's but, oh okay like that could be a response but i always read it as okay <laughs> you know so it's like mm-hmm. it's it's it is an interesting thing because then you're like, then you're just caught in this tension of like, well, I don't know how that landed. Did that land? Okay. Well, and then you start to have to over rely on emojis to do what the voice was right. going to do in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Because I could easily say, yeah, okay. You know, and that, that to me, that indicates, Hey, we're on board. I'm right. perfectly okay with what you just said. But now if I just say, okay, do I have to include a smiley face emoji? And in that case, am I 14 years old again? Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, too, the smiley face, right? Like, there's a lot. It's the same thing with, with reacts on, um, you know, like Facebook and Instagram. When you, it's like your options are, you know, laugh, mm-hmm. you know, like. I mean, you have an angry one, and it's pretty angry. <laughs> you know, there really should be, like, the one with, like, with just the, the straight, mouth like that's kind of because a lot of times i'm like yeah i mean i read it like that's all i want to say well and then for me i always have the additional problem is what tone of skin should i use right 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 because because i don't want to use the darkest one because that would be digital blackface right but of course i'm not as yellow as a simpson no no i'm sort of moderately dark-skinned italian do they make that hue well of course they do but then you have to figure out how to make that i i just it's a very so sometimes i'll just default to yellow and then i won't feel right about that is that digital simpson face not sure not sure the etiquette here yeah no i hear you i get you um that's why it's just eggplants and poop emojis for me because you either know that i'm uh if it's poop it's probably like because it's a smiley poop it's like yeah and that's my happy place and if it's a, a i mean because basically i have two responses uh that response was shitty or i'm horny it's odd to me that you often will send me both of those in the yep. same text yeah because i mean because <laughs> usually that's just telling you what i'm doing at the moment well, and one sometimes begets the other for you in a way that is, is a little disturbing to me. And it's yeah. also disturbing to me that you want me to know this about you. Well, we'll let the audience decide which one begets which. <laughs> it's a circular relationship. <laughs> All right. I have uh, one email for you, Steve. Mm. Yeah, this was sent to our Game of Thrones account uh, from Justin. 
Does Steve ever do gigs outside of NoCal? Yes. <laughs> that is the monosyllabic answer from Steve <laughs> Osborne. Do you have any I, uh, plans to do uh, gigs in the near future outside of NoCal? Uh, right now, no, nothing on the books, but I, I do want to do more, especially as the summer comes around. Do we have any idea where this person might be? Like, are they looking to see me, or are they just, is it? Um, I don't know, but judging by Justin's uh, Gmail profile pic, it could be a SoCal thing. Mm, okay. He just has a SoCal vibe. And, of course, that is absolutely not a criticism of you, Justin, unless you actually are from SoCal. Then it actually is a criticism. Then it is a criticism, sure. Yeah. Yeah, because if you're if you're living in Idaho and you give off a SoCal vibe, that's probably pretty cool for Idaho. If oh, you absolutely. give off a SoCal vibe and you're from SoCal, come on. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Take a look at yourself. All right, and and recently you did uh, set at Cobb's, right? Uh, yeah. How'd yeah. that go? How'd the set pretty go? Pretty good. Went really well. It was uh, uh, opening for Dan Soder. It was really great. And. Okay, uh, well, that's that's good to hear. Uh, did you try any new material? I don't know that I did that night. Um, I mean, I have some like relatively new stuff that uh, I was excited to do uh, for that crowd, for a big crowd like that, and that worked pretty well. Um, and uh, how do you normally a- roll out your stuff? Do you normally try it on like the Healdsburg crowd first, and then like? Sort of graduate to San Francisco, or how, how do you do this? It depends. I mean, it. it, it uh, I will oftentimes debut it if I can at, at Punchline, like on a Sunday night showcase, because mm. usually it's it's not that it, it's it's certainly not an open mic by any stretch, but it is a place of comfort uh, for me just because I'm there so often. It's a good place to try to to work something in if if you've got a good set going, you know. Put something in the middle that you're trying to work on and see how it how it lands and go from there. Mm. All right. Well, that is all that we have for feedback this week. Uh, of course, you can email uh, to cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. And it is absolutely helpful for us if you would leave an iTunes review. I promise it will be read on this podcast. Uh, do you want to talk about what we cover next time i we we haven't really discussed this prior we have a list yeah you have a, a preference this one pans was pretty he- heavy right do you want to do something a little bit lighter well we've done we so we've we've done some well severance was you know not super light obviously well severance show. is heavy i would say it's, it's heavy. Leans, although there's a lot of comedic elements it is a heavy show yeah, it's a sure. heavy show for sure uh and then we went uh, in the fly. I mean, these are. I, mean, I guess maybe because Lost Boys had a little whimsy, and the fly had. We had some fun with uh, with Mr. Goldblum. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sure. How about Teen Wolf? What do you think about Teen Wolf? <laughs> what do I think about Teen Wolf? Well, tune in next week and find out. <laughs> All right. So yeah, absolutely Teen Wolf. And then I think I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that after Teen Wolf, uh, Multiverse of Madness, Doctor Strange. Mm. Yes, yes. That's, because that's, I think that that is, I think that works out timing wise. Yeah. So, all right. So next week, join us here for Teen Wolf. And you know what? If you want to revisit Teen Wolf yourself, have a blast. Have a blast. Yeah, I highly yeah. recommend it. Okay. Not to say that we endorse everything that happens in that movie, but of course, yeah, this is a horror <laughs> show. We don't endorse everything that happens in any movie that we cover. <laughs> no, exactly. We're just observers. We're like, yeah, we're like the Jane Goodalls. <laughs> <laughs>
cocoon of horror. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the fourth be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>